Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Christine Klussman. Christine is a Harvard-trained positive health psychology researcher, clinician, and community organizer dedicated to helping individuals more effectively solve societal problems by emphasizing personal accountability and transformation. She's the founder of The Purpose Project, as well as its research arm, The Connection Lab, a nonprofit think tank committed to the scientific research, exploration, education, and practice of authentic connection. With Sounds True, Christine Klussman has written a beautiful new book called Connection, how to find the life you're looking for in the life you have. Christine is remarkably soft-spoken, practical, and generous. Take a listen. Here's my conversation with Christine Klussman. Christine, as the founder of The Purpose Project, as well as its research arm, Connection Lab. Let's start by having our listeners learn a little bit about what is the Purpose Project. And then we'll also talk some about the research you conduct at the Connection Lab. But let's start with the Purpose Project. What is it? Sure, well, the Purpose Project is actually all about the research. Um, it it really is um, you know, a think tank, more or less. and kind of a place where my colleagues and I who are interested in you know, looking at these topics of meaning and values and how to live our best life um, come together. And we're focused on just trying to put out um, you know, research that we find you know, really important um, and in a way that you know, we're, we're not as constrained maybe by academic you know, institutions um, and where we also get to take that research and the results of it and build it into programs or um, writings or educational you know, offerings for the community. Mm-hmm. By way of example, help me understand a piece of research you conducted and what the takeaways were from it. Yeah, sure. Um, so we just, for instance... Um, One of the studies that um, actually I was just looking at this morning was about the relationship between 
mindfulness, um, well-being, flourishing, and connection. And and one of the takeaways from that study is that um, that the three they all affect each other. You know that mindfulness, in fact, increases our sense of being connected to ourself, which there and increases our sense of well-being and even our sense of flourishing. So we're kind of looking at, um, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And, you know, is it enough just to be mindful? Or, you know, where do we start with all of these well-being practices? Um, And how does being connected to ourselves fit in the mix? Um, So that's what we're honing in on. You know, how does mindfulness um, interact with self-connection and how does self-connection interact with all of these different markers of well-being? Mm-hmm. Now, Christine, you've developed something that you write about in your new book, Connection, called Connection Theory, a new psychological approach to well-being. What is connection theory? <laughs> no, thanks for asking. Um, so it's really, um, it's a repackaging of everything that we know that works best. Um, I'm big into trying to look through a holistic lens or, you know, I've always craved meta theories when I was in my graduate school program. And even throughout this whole positive psychology revolution, which I've just been consuming and obsessed with and a part of, um, I love all the individual tools that that we know about gratitude practice and forgiveness practice and self-compassion and mindfulness. But what it has left me with is a sense of just this bulging tool bag. And personally, I'm not good at remembering all of those things, um, you know, especially in, in any given day or week, you know, what, what to implement or to keep practicing. So this is my attempt at coming up with one thing, one frame, one lens to look through so that I can ask myself um, and help my clients look at, you know, when I'm not not right with myself or with the world, I can ask myself this question, you know, am I feeling connected to myself? Yes or no. And if not, what's blocking that connection? You know, is it that I need to move my body? Is it that I need to deliver an undelivered communication? Um, Is it that I need to just tune into the present moment? Um, Do I need to practice some forgiveness? It's a way to sort of access all those and organize all of those tools, but under one umbrella that can kind of be your, you know, your doorway, so to speak. So you describe asking this question of ourselves, am I feeling connected to myself right now as the cornerstone technique that you offer in connection theory, cornerstone technique. Am I feeling connected to myself right now? So imagine someone hears that question and they think, uh, I don't know. Am I feeling connected right now? I don't know. What does that even mean? So let's work with it a little bit. And I'm going to throw at you, Christine, what I think some of the possible responses are when people work with this, because it's a really profound question. And I'm starting to feel into all of its various applications, but I am going to be a little bit devilish here. Am I feeling connected to myself right now? I have no idea. What would you say to that person? I, I love that answer. That's exactly where I started with it. Um, that's how I felt when I first started asking that question. 
Um, I think that um, the what I like to say in, in the beginning to people is that a way a way into feeling uh, feeling your way into whether or not you're connected is to just simply tune into: Am I feeling um, a sense of ease or unease? You know, and that can that can be anywhere in your body and your mind. Um, just you know, are you feeling, if you want to be literal about the word, are you feeling really in tune with what it is that you're doing, who it is that you're with? You know, if, when I, if I ask my, it depends where you're asking yourself that question. <clears throat> but if I ask that question and I'm having lunch with someone, I think, am I really here right now? Or am I thinking about the million things that I need to do? Am I listening to this person Am I am I really tuning into the closeness between us? Um, am, am I just 100% in my body um, with this experience? So it's about being present and awake and aware, but also intentional and just aligned with what you're doing. Um, is what you're doing right now what you want to be doing? Um, and are you giving yourself to that? You know, that that's one kind of one way in to the sense of, am I feeling connected? I use it also when I'm, when I'm with my kids, um, when I'm, even when I'm doing uh, certain activities, like it can be even washing dishes. It doesn't have to be anything extraordinary, but, you know, it's really just trying to play with um, and amplify, I think, what we're used to thinking of as mindfulness and just being present with what's happening but also being um, really in tune with how is this consistent with my values and how is this aligned with what I deeply care about? Um, so it takes it a step farther than mindfulness. Um, and it's kind of asking you, you know, first of all, are you even awake? That's what, that's the, the very first question. And am I connected? Are you conscious of what you're doing? And can you, tune into a sense of intentionality to what you're putting your energy towards. And then we kind of unfold it and unpack it from there. Mm -hmm. Well, let's keep going with some of these examples. I think it's really useful. So you're with your kids and you ask yourself, am I feeling connected to myself right now? And let's say, I don't know, let's say your kids are doing something that you have like, absolutely no interest in and yet you're with them. And you don't feel particularly connected. How then do you work with connection theory to become more connected and increase your sense of well-being? And maybe you could give an, an actual example from your life. Sure. Um, yeah, just last night that happened to me with the kids and we were all in our respective rooms doing our own thing, um, not hanging out at all. And, you know, I kind of woke up from what I was doing in my emails for just a second and noticed that you know, we weren't, we weren't together, but being together is not a prerequisite of, of connection. And I asked myself, um, what am I doing right now? Is this what I want to be doing? Do I want to be doing my emails? Um, you know, do I feel connected to, you know, my intention of how I want to be spending my time this evening, but also, you know, what's the feeling in our household? Are, are we, are we numbing ourselves and just whiling away the time mindlessly or 
you know, does this feel okay? And the answer that I came up with was actually, this is really nice. Like there's a nice, comfortable, you know, warm cohabitating feeling with the house. We've all, um, we've all interacted a lot recently, you know, even just an hour or so ago. And, and now we're, everybody's just kind of happily doing their own thing. My other son was playing his guitar in the next room and my older son was doing his homework. Um, and I felt just a warm sense of kind of, um, I don't want to say invisible connection to them, but contentedness within myself. And I felt like, yep, this moment feels um, as it should be. And I'm good with it. And I'm the connection part for me was just being awake and asking myself that question and having the opportunity to course correct. If, for instance, we hadn't talked all day or, you know, if it didn't feel right that we were all holding up in our rooms um, for far too long, then maybe it would be an opportunity for me to say, you know, let me let me see if I can drum up a little more connection here. And so connection isn't just about whether or not I'm going to, you know, open my door and talk to the boys or we're going to get together. It's first and foremost about connecting to myself and just for checking in and doing an inventory for a split second and saying, you know, are my actions right now aligned with my my highest values and priorities? No big deal. I don't have to put a ton of thought into it. It just, does this feel right right now? Okay. So let's say there's a moment in time and you say, am I feeling connected to myself right now? And the answer you get is, you know, I feel like zoning out right now. I don't feel like being connected. I feel like turning on some of that uh, television series that I think I'm in season seven, episode <laughs> 99. And uh, I don't want to ask this question and I don't want to be connected. What what's what do you think about that? I love that because um, I, I, I really do. And I just, uh, I live that example so much um, and just did the other night. <laughs> um, and I, I would call that being connected. Um, that is a moment where you're connecting, listening to what your deepest need is, or just a true need, and you're honoring it very intentionally, and then you're deliciously savoring it and doing it. And that's perfectly fine and a great sample example of being connected to yourself. When you're not connected to yourself is when you're doing that a little mindlessly, a little unintentionally. Um, and you're kind of numbing, maybe, maybe you're escaping and you're losing time and you kind of wake up from after three or four episodes with a little bit of a, what happened? You know, I didn't mean to do that. Um, and, and maybe in the process, you sort of neglected some other, you know, bigger priorities that you would have liked to have attended to, or that you should have, or that were sort of needing you. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned that connection theory in some ways takes us even further than mindfulness. And what I'm trying to understand is when somebody's assessing their level of connection in the moment, what underlying skills or capacities do they have to have? Like, for example, I've done a lot of meditation work and I've done a lot of body scan type practices. So for me, when I ask myself, am I connected? I'm tuning in at a somatic level. That's what I'm doing. And I'm kind of seeing like, am I here? Is there tension in my body? But do you think, is that a necessary 
skill to have to assess our level of connection? Or could I just go and start thinking about it and just kind of reflect? Would that do the job as well? That's such a good question. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, and it, you know, it's such a good point because I, I do think it's amazing if you have those skills and you, you know how to tune in somatically. Um, I think many people don't, and a lot of us are kind of cut off from the neck down. Um, and you don't need those skills to, it's a bonus um, to sort of walk through that doorway of connection. What I find, um, I find that it can be a little bit simpler for people, a little more accessible um, for people that, you know, don't do meditation or haven't done somatic work to simply just be asking themselves this question, you know, do I feel close to myself right now? Do I feel in tune with my needs? What am I needing? You know, am I, and back to this question of ease versus unease, you know, am I needing to rest? Um, am I needing to take care of something that I've been avoiding? You know, where is the unease coming from? And just, it's just really asking yourself to wake up for a minute and survey what's hap happening, what you're doing right in the moment and decide if that feels, um, feels congruent, you know, with, with your values and without, it's great when you can unpack the values part and really know your values and do all the exercises to be more acquainted with that side of yourself, but you really don't have to. When I first started doing this work, um, and I was doing it mostly with my parenting, because I found that I was so often just tuned just elsewhere. When I was with my kids, I was going through the motions. Um, and, you know, I said I was dutifully, you know, doing everything, but just not really um, given over to the moment, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, or really um, tuning into the joy or, you know, and when I, when I start, that's, I just would ask myself that question over and over, you know, am I connected right now? Why not? What am I doing right now? I'm looking at my phone, you know, while my kids are playing Legos. What if I put my phone down and just join in with them a little bit? Um, do I feel more connected then? Yes. Just super simple. Like you don't even really have to actually know what connection means. You can just have a, an idea. People can have different ideas of it themselves. But it, the idea is that it feels better than it does mm -hmm. to be disconnected. Mm -hmm. One of the parts of the book that I uh, really enjoyed reading about and I thought was really illuminating had to do with how you can transform and become more connected to things that are perceived as like everyday chores. You give a great example of cooking dinner with your kids that I'd love for you to share that has to do with pizza night, in case you've forgotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought it was a great example because I think sometimes, you know, whether it's doing the laundry or you mentioned washing the dishes or there's various times, well, how can I be connected? I'm doing this like X, Y, Z thing that I have to do in my life. That's not that interesting. Right. But you, you offered some interesting suggestions for how we can change those activities, mundane activities into connected, meaningful activities. So I wonder if you can talk some about that. Yeah, thanks. No, I love that example about the pizza night. Um, that came about just from me taking like a 24-hour inventory of do I feel connected, yes or no, and what are the circumstances? And one of the circumstances I found that was when I'm cooking. And I just felt like 
alone while I was doing it, which is fine. Um, but I also felt just like, oh, I just want to get this over with. Like, you know, how fast can I just like slap this together? And this is, you know, just when I checked in about that question, I noticed a sense of unease. I'm not enjoying the activity that much. I'm not hating it, but it, and I don't particularly feel that connected to what I'm making. I don't really care. Um, I just want to get it, you know, whatever's the path of least resistance and slap something down. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of time that I spend every night um, doing that and being in that state. And, you know, I don't, I don't get a lot of time with these guys um, after school. So I, I just, without wanting to make it a Herculean effort, I just thought, can we do any better here? <laughs> you know, is Can this become a more meaningful activity? And meaning when I start teaching people how to seek out and inject more connection into the equation, meaning is one of the the low hanging fruit. You know, if you're doing something meaningless, like turn on your creative brain for how can I make this act, this mundane activity a little more meaningful. So in my case, I decided, um, you know, what if I, what if I brought the kids in here and got them a bit involved? And what if we made something a little more fun that and more engaging? Um, and, and pizza, you know, was the thing. And I thought, you know, then they can put their own toppings on it. And, and I, I was just really amazed. I had some resistance to it at first where I thought, you know, I'm not trying to be super mom here. Like the last thing I want to do is set the bar really high for myself. Um, but I'm at the store anyway. It was just as easy to grab some pre-made pizza dough, some stuff. It just took a little bit of thought and and connecting to my intention of, you know, how do I, how would I like this night to go? What would I like it to feel like? And it was just, it's just amazing to me how the incremental amount of effort is usually so little compared to the payoff of how much better it feels when you when you bring that kind of intention to you know, I want to connect to this experience of making food, to the experience of having the kids in the mix. Um, they ended up, of course, loving it and were, you know, sit, sitting there watching it, waiting for it to rise. Um, and now it's become like this famous little pizza night in our house and just something um, that's brought, you know, unexpected joy that to a situation that was just whatever, you know, kind of joyless, but... <laughs> So to me, I wouldn't have gotten there if I hadn't asked myself that question and if the connection weren't my why. Um, if you asked me as a fully busy mom who's working and has a full plate, you know, hey, can you do a little extra effort on your dinner presentation? I would have thought, screw you, no way, you know, I'm already doing so much. But if you ask me like, hey, do you want to feel more just just connected and in your body and have a more just fulfilling experience from this five to six thirty period. That sounded a lot better. <laughs> okay. So let's say someone's listening and they're scanning their life right now, their seven day week life. And they're thinking, you know, these are the moments when I zone out. It's not particularly meaningful. I'm just kind of trudging. I'm just kind of trudging through it. What's the next question they can ask themselves to transform those parts of their lives into something that will feel more nourishing, more easeful? Hmm. Well, it really depends um, on what they're doing. Sure. Um, you know, I feel that way when I'm doing emails. And 
there's no way around it for me. Um, so I, I have a, a couple different things that I do or try. It's not always um, just asking the, the question. It's also about taking action, taking inspired action. And frankly, the best action that I've found for some of the things where I'm trudging is to pair it with something else. Um, in the case of me doing emails, I do them while I'm walking on my treadmill because, which I don't particularly like either, but I at least feel like I'm getting a little bit of, I'm getting two things done. There's, I'm adding- Two things you don't like equal one thing that's not so bad. Right. Um, another, but I think the most important thing I would ask people, and I, when I'm working with my clients or in workshops, this is kind of the first place we go is to do a values inventory. And it's just, it's, I've never, I haven't met what per, one person who doesn't benefit from refreshing themselves on their values and going, oh yeah, these are the things that I care most about in life. And, and from that, what are, what are my priorities? Which ones matter the most? Um, and that's where I would go right away with people is say, how do we link this, you know, the drudgery to something that you actually it's a reframing exercise, something that you care about deeply that, you know, sitting here doing these emails um, is in service of this work that, you know, enables you to provide for your family. And, you know, it's trying to find the meaning again and anchoring it in the values um, that can go a long way towards, you know, we, there was a study on that. Um, and I, I think this was the, um, the Stanford study about the kids who were on their spring break and some kids were asked to just um, report what they did. And the other kids were asked to say about how what they did was really consistent with, with their values. And, and the kids that journaled about the values, how every, you know, how driving their little brother around was actually in service of helping their family. Um, and they tied everything to something you know, more meaningful, reported like having such a better experience and had these more lasting effects of well-being like months later. So that works to really reframe um, any drudgery that you're experiencing and take it from being, you're transforming it from being a disconnected, unintentional activity to something intentional that you're very connected to. You still may not feel like doing it. That's fine. Not being connected is not always about having a happy, positive, enjoyable experience. Um, that, that's one of the things I love about working with connection. It's not, we're not just focusing on positivity. Um, you can be connected while doing some, having a very difficult conversation with somebody or having to show up and have some courage um, or sit sit bedside with somebody who's not doing well in the hospital. Like, so it, it's about just connecting with the deeper intention of it all. Now, in the very beginning, I mentioned that you're the founder of the Purpose Project, and we've been talking a lot about what's meaningful to us and finding meaning in activities. And I think a lot of times people get confused about meaning and purpose, is, you know, oh, I'm, I'm on purpose, so my life's meaningful. Yes? So first, let's just start, if you can share how you understand the difference between focusing on purpose and focusing on meaning. Yeah, I, I love, I spend so much time thinking about these distinctions. Um, and they are so important, and they get blended together, even with values. Um, 
And I think that, you know, meaning, I'll start there, um, are incredibly important clues to to what your what your values are. Um, and and your values are incredibly important clues to, you know, what your purpose or your purposes um, can be or are. And, and meaning also are important clues to your, to your purpose. So I think meaning in and of itself is not just the end point. Um, it's a, that's the point of self-discovery of, you know, what matters to me, you know, what, what gives my heart an explosion? Um, you know, what, what lights me up? What do I care about? Um, what feels meaningless? Like it's equally important to notice what feels meaningless. And that's to me just um, incredible rich information about what you care about and what you care about and what matters to you are all indicators, you know, that, that you're looking for on that, um, on that pathway to discovering, you know, what am I here to do? Like, what are my greatest gifts to give? And, um, you know, and that, and that's all about uncovering, you know, the, the many purposes that we have in this lifetime. What's my, you know, I think purpose, um, let me give you an example and I'll kind of tie it to parenting for a second, but, um, you know, purpose can look more and often does look more like a mission statement. Um, when I'm doing work with people on their, on kind of uncovering purpose, I ask them to create a mission statement um, around parenting or around their, you know, romantic partnership. Like what kind of partner do I really want to be? What is my ideal, my vision um, for myself? Like what am I here to do? And, you know, develop a purpose statement. So purpose I'm thinking about it and describing it a little differently than um, how most people think about it, which is like, what's my calling or, you know, my one thing that I'm supposed to do here in life. And I, I think that it's important to break it down and realize that we're here to do many things and they, and that we, when we want to bring a sense of purpose to whatever we're doing, that's when it's that big and that important to us. And then those moments of meaning are the things that that really kind of inform and fuel that purpose and make sure that you're on the right track. And when we look at meaning, I find it's not useful really to think about meaning in a, um, a all or nothing way, like binary, you know, is my life meaningful? Yes, no. That doesn't really give us a lot of information. So what we study, like in one of our research studies, we do uh, micro moments of meaning where we really look at is what I'm doing right now meaningful? You know, is this conversation you and I are having meaningful and kind of be informed um, at a more granular level of how you're spending your time, what kind of choices you're making, you know, and whether I'm just slapping something together for dinner or am I doing something, you know, creating my first lasagna um, that feels just more meaningful. And, and those are all part of maybe a larger mission statement, my purpose of you know, what kind of parent um, do I want to be? What kind of family do I want to have? And it's just about having more intentional, kind of purposeful uh, or on purpose, you know, living where there's something that you're aiming for. You know, that that's what purpose gives us. It's really more goal-directed. Um, you've got your sights set on a vision. 
So I hope I answered that. But <laughs> well, there's there's a little bit more I want to try to tease apart. I mean, one thing you write about and you pointed to it here is misconceptions people have about purpose. Uh, one of them is that it's singular. Uh, it's possible we could have many different purpose I, I'm just joking, yeah. uh, many different purposes. And uh, the other misconception you write about is that our purpose is forever. You're loosening it up and talking more about the many different kinds of purposes we can manifest and how it grows and changes in our life. So I think that's that's important. I do too. And I think that um, when I talk to a lot of, even my girlfriends are about the concept of purpose, um, I find that so many people are just in a chokehold about it, like really constricted and, and even a, just feel a, a tremendous angst. Like I haven't found my purpose yet, or, you know, am I really living my purpose? Um, and it, it can, uh, you know, again, like meaning, you know, instead of looking at your life in a binary and asking it in a binary question, all or nothing, it, what I find loosens it up is to really honor and, step back and recognize that, um, you know, purposes have our, our, we are just constantly evolving creatures. So we're constantly in a state of having things that are either just beginning to bud like a flower, or we have things that are in full bloom that are happening in our life. And then we also have things that are beginning to wither away and that are, you know, that have served their purpose and are, are on the backside. And Rather than getting focused on just the answer to that question, you know, what is my purpose? I find it a lot more useful to kind of scrub through your life and really tune into what's trying to emerge. You know, what are the things that might want to be budding? Um, what's what's capturing my imagination lately? Um, and then also pausing to take stock of what's really what's blooming? You know, is it my career? Is it my family? Is it my friend? Like what's really going well for me and is still in full stride and honoring that. And even though you might have more to give in this world and more purpose that needs to be discovered, it's still important to honor um, what is working. But then the most important exercise, I think, where we tend to hang on too long is the things that are past, you know, the bloom has come off the rose and they're kind of withering and we're, we cling a little bit and we're, we're maybe not ready to let go, but part it's about making room for purpose is really also about, you know, creating space and letting go of the things that have served their purpose and are no longer um, serving. And so it's, I find that that's a much more active um, mining process that, you know, if you're if you're asking that question of yourself, then it, it takes a bit more excavation than just asking the question and hoping that an answer will materialize. Mm -hmm. I love the flowering metaphors as well and the different phases of the flower. That's beautiful. Now, I want to ask you a kind of edgy question. It comes from my own experience, which is, you know, I've found that in my life, I can often feel very on purpose even in the way you just described of the different phases. I always seem to have a project that I'm either done with and letting go of and a new one coming. It's fine, great, so many projects. Okay, wonderful, Tammy. But at the same time of being very on purpose, 
I can have this weird sneaking feeling of everything being meaningless. It's a it's not a very, it's a, it's a difficult feeling. It's a kind of bleak kind of what's the point really when you look at, you know, what's the point. So help me understand how even it's possible to feel very on purpose and have this strange kind of empty, meaningless feeling. That's an awesome question. <laughs> I really like that one. Um, and I, you know, I can relate to that. Um, even personally, I've had that experience as well. And I think it, it's a, it can be a little bit more complicated. Um, but where I go with myself um, around that kind of duality of that experience is I, I'm often humbled and reminded about how meaning making um, very much like gratitude is a practice you know, that if you, you use it or you lose it. And that, that doesn't mean necessarily that, um, that you're going to turn around and just cultivate and practice a lot of meaning and gratitude for what you're doing. And you're going to be right back on purpose, feeling, um, a thousand percent fulfilled by what you're doing. I think that it, it means that, um, in some way, you know, What's working against us at all times is hedonic adaptation, where we get used to what we're doing, we get used to what's going well, um, you know, we're, and we, we get used to the good, and it just doesn't impact us or, me, or mean as much to us. So in order to, in order to, to, to not, um, to still get the goods from what we're doing, we do need to practice savoring. And you know, tuning into how in which this is meaningful to us and how this aligns with your values. And even if you know, like what you're doing is on purpose and on track, and you've already vetted it, it's still a really healthy and important exercise to remind yourself and to, you know, go back and look at your values and go, oh, yeah, that, that's right. That That's why I do what I do. And that's why um, I love helping people. And, you know, I love talking about, you know, these types of things um, and, and refresh. So I think refresh is one part of it. And then healthy skepticism is another where even though you're living on purpose, if there's an ache or a nag, you know, that's the part of like asking yourself to tune in and connect to that. Um, like, what is that? Like give that, you know, and I doubt that that little ache really has to do with everything feels meaningless, but maybe that's more of a yearning that something else, you know, that there's more to give, you know, we all want and need to be continually evolving and growing. So, you know, is there more that you want that's emerging like that uh, metaphor with the bud, you know, something that wants to, to come out. So I think that I use those feelings of meaninglessness, um, Right away, it rings my bell to say, okay, I need to start, you know, cultivating my practice again. And what that looks like for me is just right before I go to bed, I jot down the things that were, that stood out to me um, as particularly meaningful, kind of like a gratitude practice. And it's highly, highly effective, even in just like two or three days to reset and refresh and kind of imbue me with, um, you know, even like neurologically, like 
helping me re-experience and re-imbue the experience with more meaning. And then also go in an inquiry mode. So that was would be my two answers is to, you know, kind of reconnect to the practice of, you know, savoring and, you know, like reminding yourself of how what you're doing is aligned with your values, but then also um, inquiring skeptically, like using healthy skepticism to say, you know, like, what am I, what am I not seeing? Mm-hmm. So Christine, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea at the end of the day of doing a gratitude practice, but I don't think a lot of people are familiar with this suggestion you're offering of doing a practice of reflecting on what's meaningful. So can you say a little bit more about how to do that at the end of the day, maybe give an example from your own experience? Yeah, sure. Um, It is something that I play with a lot with myself and, um, it's like I do it just and I keep a journal by my bed. I write, I try to write down, you know, three to five things at the end of the day that really jumped out to me um, that were meaningful moments. It might be something funny one of my kids said, or just a really poignant moment um, in a therapy session with a client, um, or something that I was grateful for. Gratitude and meaning are really intertwined. Um, but I think recently a more powerful example is one of my clients um, who had a lot of hardship, had lost everything. Um, She's a frontline worker. And one of her explicit complaints to me was, um, you know, she also lost custody of her kids. And she said, you know, I have nothing. Like my life is just meaningless. And in a really heavy, heavy way, um, objectively, that looked to be very true, you know, on paper. And I wasn't trying to refute her reality in any way, but I said, you know, let's just do an experiment with that, um, a thought experiment, like for the week, let's just test whether that's, how true is that? And let's, you know, let's challenge you to see, uh, let's go meaning hunting. And she was up for it. So, you know, in a way that didn't really, we weren't invalidating her experience, Um, you know, we very much said it's, it's, it's absolutely true that you've had all of these horrific losses. And, and yet there's, now we're asking the question, is life, is there still meaning in life? You know, and where can it be found? So she agreed to kind of jot down and push herself to find as many moments of meaning um, as little. And I gave her a lot of examples, you know, which really helped kind of prime the pump a bit. Um, but she came back just bursting with examples at our next session of just moments at, um, she works with homeless folks and she just moments where she was helping people or somebody held the door for her or, you know, just noticing some spring flowers, um, outside her door. And she was tuning into all kinds of micro moments of meaning and connection with others. Um, and by the second week she did come back and say, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but my life is filled. There's meaning everywhere. Like I'm just not in the habit of seeing it. And, and that's, that's really true for all of us. Like we, we just become habituated and kind of not numb, but to, you know, we, we're just not in the habit of seeing it, but it is so easily cultivatable that when you train yourself to look for things that, um, you know, like I said, make your, make your heart heart burst or make you smile. Um, it's, it's not hard at all. Like you can, 
go take a walk around your block um, and come back. If I challenged you to go find five things, you know, you could do it. You, you share a very uh, inspiring story in the book about how you borrowed your son's Polaroid camera and did a, a photo capture of meaningful objects in your house. And uh, I really love that. Tell me about some of the things you took photos of and what the meaning was for you in those photographs. Oh, it, it evolved. Um, at first, I think I, you know, it's funny, we ended up using that um, intervention in our in, in our studies and then in subsequent studies. And we, it, we published a study. Well, it's interesting that you call it an intervention. That's interesting in and of itself. Maybe you can explain that. We do now because you know we used it in our in our uh, with some of our you know a couple of our published studies we called it um, photographing meaning, but it came from um, I can't remember what started it and I I was challenging myself I think I was part of like a workshop or something where we were supposed to find meaning and I just didn't feel like doing writing um, or journaling it you know sometimes that works great for me and I love it but photograph photographing is just a much faster way. So I decided I'm going to take pictures of things that are meaningful. And I just quickly exhausted my, the usual suspects of taking photos of every single animal and person that I love. And, and then I had to get more creative. Um, and I found it really interesting to take photos of things that where you're not trying to create a beautiful image, like they don't have to be photo worthy. So then I started to just, um, maybe take photos of an empty room in my house that, but that I just loved the way that I decorated it. And it made me so happy um, or something that I cooked or, you know, I took pictures of some things I cut out of my vegetable garden. Um, just, you know, I just started collecting moments throughout my day of, um, you know, I, I took a picture of my notepad that I, at the time I was working on this book and I jot my ideas down in this notepad. And, you know, that notepad was so meaningful to me. Um, I took a picture of the cup of coffee that, you know, my favorite mug of coffee and that I use every morning when I sit down to write. And, um, and it just started to just become, you know, what seems like kind of maybe really mundane or meaningless things to probably anybody else. But at the end of it, I was amazed at how much I loved this personal collection of little photos. Like they all just, you know, touched me in a certain way. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite photo albums, more than the photos that I intentionally take. <laughs> and, and when you say that you use it in your studies as an intervention, how do you use it and what are the results? So we use it... Um, as a way, as I was just kind of saying, we found it really helpful to bypass the thinking brain um, and that we can get a little bogged down on, you know, is something meaningful? Is it not? And that snapping photos um, can be a little more immediate and impulsive. Um, so when we asked people, you know, to kind of do these, have these burst experiences, with, whether it was either for 24 hours or for five days. Um, we did different time settings of run around and just find as many meaningful things as you can, um, whether it's a hummingbird or this or that, and, you know, doesn't matter. You, you be the judge. There's no criteria. And, and then we ended up, and we did find, um, 
we did find that that increased people's sense of self-connection and lowered their anxiety and, you know, better sense of well-being. But we decided to repeat that study during COVID. And we wondered if people during like the most strict period of quarantine who were, you know, looking at their life as really limited and their options and seeing a lot of scarcity, um, if that doing this exercise could, you know, reframe what their experience was and give them a sense of abundance um, and possibility. And so we asked them to do the same thing and figured, you know, on their smartphone, they could just run around their house or immediately outside their door or on a walk. Um, and, and we did find significant results that people, you know, not only had, you know, more improved well-being like immediately, but then I think we got like a month or two follow-up out of that. Um, so yeah, it, it works to, you know, it's really about priming yourself to like, once you start to see meaning, even after 24 hours, um, it's like shopping for a car. You know, if you decided that you're looking for a red car and then all of a sudden you notice them everywhere <laughs> on the road, that that's how, you know, cultivation of uh, meaning is that you, you start, it, you let it out of the gates and itself it's so, because it's naturally reinforcing and enjoyable and rewarding. So it does take on a life of its own very easily. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, Christine, we talked about purpose, and you mentioned how there are these misconceptions and that our purpose can be plural, it changes. You gave the example of the different phases of uh, flowers opening in a garden. There's also, though, a section in the book where you're talking about purpose, where you do describe what it's like to find a sense of higher purpose or a grand purpose in your life. And I I wonder if you can talk some about that. Does everybody have this higher purpose, this grand purpose? You know, they, not necessarily, everyone has the opportunity for that. Um, And it's, it's important to, it's something important to know about, but not from a, a sense of feeling pressured, like it's something that you have to do. But it, you know, I, I was laying that out for my readers as part of the Maslow's hierarchy, like, you know, the very top of Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization and which, which all human beings, um, once we get kind of our lower needs met, it's a natural instinctive um, yearning for ascension to that place to you know, whether that's know thyself, like it to, or finding your purpose. But I view your grand purpose um, as like the very tip of that triangle. And what that, the one ingredient that that requires is that what you're doing, um, you know, whatever gift that you're giving to this world, whatever your, your work is, and that can, that can be, you know, paid work, non-paid work, parenting, um, you, know, you define it, but if it's it's in service of something beyond yourself, um, something greater than yourself, and that that transcendent that um, it's not just about you, and it's not just about making money or um, you know some of the low, getting some of the lower level needs met. Um, that's you know some of the greatest wisdom thinkers in the world talk about that being just the ultimate bliss. Um, that mm-hmm. you know, not all of us get to do. I mean, there, you know, many of us are still just have to do what we have to do as a means to an end. But um, 
but it's a wonderful, you know, thing to, to aspire to and to, to think about, you know, how do I, how could I um, show up to that next level? Um, what does that look like for me? And maybe that's just in the form of volunteer work or, you know, but how do, you know, it's that feeling that we, I think we all want to access. And, and in writing about this and this idea of giving of ourselves something to serve other people beyond ourselves, you write about yourself in what I thought was a very vulnerable way. And I wanted to ask you about this. It really struck me. You wrote, one of my gifts is thinking, learning, researching, and writing about authentic connection. Not because I'm good at it, but because I've always had a huge hole in my heart. And I thought, huh, Christine Klusman's always had a huge hole in her heart, and that's what's informing this work underneath connection theory. And I want to know more about that. And if you still feel like you have that, is that just part of your design this lifetime? Or is all the work that you've done with authentic connection changed that in some way? Oh, well, thank you for asking that question. I actually forgot about that part in the book. Um, that is a tender part. That, you know, that where that was the context of um, why I was offering that as an example, I was pointing out that often our grand purpose, our highest gifts to give this world in the service of others is the place where we've been the most wounded. Um, you know, that is where we are often the most expertise and can only through our experience um, can we offer, you know, some guiding light to others. And yes, you know, I am one of those people that um, has had to hustle for a connection. Like it's not, it's, I'm not one of those people where it comes naturally to me and you wouldn't know it. You know, um, when I talk about that with other people, they're always surprised. But one of the things that I learned when through our research studies, especially, you know, we were hunting for people that are identified in their community or self-identified as, you know, really connected individuals, connected to themselves, to others. Um, they're doing what's meaningful to them. And what I noticed from these individuals, they were, they were all extraordinarily um, embodying this feeling of self-connection and all kinds of connections, connection to their community and their beloved people. You know, you're in, immediately magnetized to them regardless of what they do or what you do or don't have in common with them. And, and we're not all born like those people. Some people have had just a really lovely combination of upbringing, you know, and um, circumstances um, or ability to really be, you know, close to an acting from a, a place of being at one with themselves. But but many of us, you know, the society that we live in just pulls us constantly towards disconnection and towards dishonoring ourselves and our deeper truths. And, and I certainly didn't get that modeling from my parents. Um, they're great people. But, you know, we weren't thinking or talking about any of this type of stuff. Um, and I, I think that most of my life has been characterized by, you know, betrayal by, a, you know, death by a thousand cuts, um, you know, following someone else's path rather than my own and, um, and just not tuning in, you know, acting um, from a place of, you know, really doing what I feel like I should be doing and um, 
without asking the deeper questions. So yeah, it doesn't come natural to me. And I don't think it comes natural to a lot of people, but there are some, the lucky few that um, it's just who they are and how they operate. <laughs> and with the work you've done uh, to learn, you, you say this is a teachable skill. We can mm -hmm. learn how to be connected. Would you say that that's changed for you, that you're kind of a living laboratory experiment with of your own connection lab, if you will? <laughs> oh my God, I wish. Um, I wish I could say that that was true for, you know, most every day, but the real truth is that I think that it, what it's done is it's definitely taught me um, how to reconnect, you know, how to pause and arrest, how to stop weeks, months, and years of disconnection um, from going on that long. I can much more quickly recognize when I'm off track and I know the things to do or to try to, to reel it back in. So for that skill has changed my life immeasurably. Um, I, I think I'm a completely different person post kind of prioritizing that as my number one thing than how I was living my life before. But does that mean that, that I still am, that I'm immune to, you know, going for long periods of being super disconnected and out of tune with myself? And um, like, no, not at all. I'm, I'm still really human in that regard um, and still battle moments, days, weeks of disconnection. Um, the only difference is I just know how to get it back on track faster. Mm -hmm. Okay, Christine, I just have a couple more questions for you. I'm imagining that person who's listening who says, you know, I think the reason I'm not more connected with myself is that there's things inside I just don't want to feel. I just don't want to feel them. So I'd rather not connect because if I were to connect, I'd have to feel those things. So no, thank you. What do you have to say to that person? I would say, you know, you're not alone. That is a really common um, coping, you know, style and actually really societally um, rewarded. You know, it's it's avoidance and that it, it can be at the most minor or the most extreme level. And and the only thing I would say to that is, you know, at what price? Like there, what I've come to learn is that um, the price that you pay for that, you know, what you can't, connection is a very contagious thing and ha being more connected begets having mo more different types of connection in your life. Um, so if you're blocked in one very important large area, then likely you're going to be blocked elsewhere. Like it's, it's hard to advance, um, I think you're even evolved, you know, as a human when you're um, when you're really disconnected from a large part of yourself, whether that's from your body or from your emotions um, or from your other people or yeah, when you're using avoidance, um, it has a way of slowly taking over and just becoming a primary coping skill. And I'm not saying that facing your emotions is easy, but it's, it is also a skill, something you can titrate and make friends with. And, you know, there's, there's a process for that too. And it's a really worthy process because 
when you can invite those emotions to have a seat at the table and let and and let them know that you know everybody belongs there and make you know not let them run the show necessarily but um it's often surprising how much less scary and painful and difficult that process really is and how great the rewards are. Um, I think so when people are operating in that way, they, they're, they're overestimating the threat and they're underestimating the reward of doing it differently. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And then also uh, let's imagine that person who says, you know, as I'm listening, the challenge I'm having is I don't feel as connected with XYZ person. I wish I was, but I'm not, not as connected to this other person. But I don't really want to say the things that I haven't been saying that would allow me to be more connected because I don't really want to say those things. I don't really want to say those things. Uh, I don't have the courage or it's too risky or, or something like that. Therefore, I'm not as connected as I would like to be. What would you say to that listener? You know, I would say... Um... It, you know, so that's really then kind of settling, right? Like that's saying, I'm going to settle for less than, um, you know, the, the closest, most unblocked relationship I could have with this person. And, and in that scenario, you know, maybe it's somebody at work and, and maybe that's kind of an appropriate coping just to get through what you, you need to get through um, for a period of time or, if it's somebody else closer, you know, maybe the cost is, is really great. You know, I think that it's really about looking at that cost benefit ratio of, you know, where am I, um, where am I trading off being connected? And it doesn't, being connected doesn't mean you have to be close to everybody um, or in a close relationship with everybody that you're relating with. It's, it's about, knowing what your priorities are and who and what really matters to you, and even knowing what doesn't serve you and who doesn't serve you. So ideally, if you can move those people, you know, to an outer periphery of your life, you know, that's, that's better. Um, but I, I think that tuning into what the cost is, is a really important starting point of being able to make the decision about, you know, it, it's about being just conscious so that these don't become unconscious trades that we're making. Mm -hmm. Okay, Christine, I'm going to ask you just one final question. Uh, first, I want to thank you uh, for being so forthcoming, vulnerable, straightforward, and helpful. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. for that. Yeah. And uh, my final question has to do with this whole notion of introducing a new theory in the world. So here you're introducing connection theory. And it's interesting to me. I mean, you're such a humble person and, uh, you know, soft-spoken. And yet you're introducing a new theory <laughs> in the world of psychological research and understanding. So I'd like to understand a little bit why. Why make it a theory versus just like these are some thoughts you've been having? Right. And what does it mean that it's a theory? And what's your hope for connection theory? And that's the note we'll end on. <laughs> that's such a huge question. Okay, let me tackle that. Um, thank you. So I think rather, than, you know, why a theory instead of a component? Um, and I'm, I think I'm just done with all of the components in psych the psychology, psychiatry, the, the field of well-being. Um, and, you know, all these tips and tricks and, you know, everybody in their own little corner 
um, not considering each other's work. I just have, I felt frustrated as a graduate student and even as a therapist trying to help my clients. Um, I didn't, I craved a holistic framework and, and one for my own life too. Um, like I said, I don't have the time or the patience to remember more than a few things and simple is everything to me. So I, you know, believe me, I did, I want to just stand on someone else's shoulders and I have and piggyback. Um, I guess I'm just not satisfied. I want to be able to use everybody's work, um, and bring it together in a way that, you know, I feel has been boiled down and condensed, um, and provides a logical order of here's how you here's how you use all of this, and here's how you you know here's where you start, and so more than anything, um, didn't necessarily want to offer a new theory, but I felt compelled to because it just didn't exist, and I needed a language um, to some and and something you know honestly to be able to test and measure and 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 not just look at it in isolation but see how it works with everything else um so i think just mainly because i have found that to be the most useful with myself with my clients um with my research subjects and you know i think that theories um there's a ton of them there they're a dime a dozen. You know, it's not it's not particularly groundbreaking to introduce a theory. It's really about you know, is it useful, and you know, does it have um, that kind of you know on the ground value? And if if so, I mean, I'm really just repackaging you know what has already been said and done, and and isn't we know works and is very useful, and helping people take it in in a really digestible way um, and simplifying it. That's that's kind of my whole goal is to simplify, you know, this this whole vast question of how do we live our best life and, you know, and, and everything that we've come to learn from, you know, the field of you know, psych positive psychology and all the wisdom traditions. Well, I do think it's useful. And quite honestly, I think it's pretty cool that you came up with a theory, Christine. <laughs> I think that's cool. <laughs> Connection theory. <laughs> I've been talking to the founder of The Purpose Project, as well as the research arm, The Connection Lab, Christine Klussman. She's the author of the new book, Connection, How to Find the Life You're Looking For in the Life You Have. Really enjoyed our conversation so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. I really did as well. It was an honor. I felt really connected too the <laughs> entire time, for real. I did as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.